Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Eucharist at Emmaus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 30th, 2017. This Sunday, we're two weeks out from Easter, and according to Luke's Gospel for this week, still struggling with disbelief. Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus didn't believe the rumors of resurrection. Later, when they told the eleven leaders in Jerusalem what they had experienced, they too disbelieved their report. And when the resurrected Christ stood in their midst, writes Luke, they still didn't believe it. All this disbelief has the ring of truth to me, in the sense of what's called a contronym. A contronym is a single word that can have contradictory or opposite meanings. For example, to consult can mean either to give advice or to receive advice. In the case of the disciples, they refused to believe that the resurrection stories were true. They disbelieved, and yet they were likewise astonished at what they increasingly couldn't deny. And let's remember, as Mary Gordon reminds us from in her book, Reading Jesus, we're not dealing here with Oedipus, Lear, or Alexander the Great. Rather, we're talking about a story that either has no meaning or creates a meaning unique in the history of the world. And so the poet John Betjeman called it the most tremendous tale of all, that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. For C.S. Lewis, the resurrection was the deeper magic before the dawn of time. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, appealed to science. At Easter, he says, we're really standing in the middle of a second Big Bang, a tumultuous surge of divine energy as fiery and intense as the very beginning of the universe. Thanks to two paintings by Diego Rodriguez de Silva de Velasquez, who lived in the 17th century, and a poem about his paintings by Denise Levertov, we can relive the numinous shock of an ordinary person when she realized that the rumors of resurrection were true. By the time that Cleopas and his unnamed companion had walked with Jesus the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, the evening darkness had descended upon them. When Jesus acted as if he would continue walking, they implored him, stay with us, for the day is almost over. And so he did, and so their dinner at Emmaus. During the day, the men had not recognized Jesus, but at dinner, writes Luke, their eyes were opened, and they understood what had happened. They immediately returned to Jerusalem and told how Jesus was recognized them when he broke the bread. It is true, the Lord has risen. Unless we believe that the men cooked their own meal and served themselves, there had to be a woman behind the scenes. But Luke leaves her unnamed and unmentioned. 
And herein is the genius of Velazquez and Levertov. Their artistic fictions imagine a historical reality. Velazquez painted two versions of what he called the kitchen maid. It's the earliest known work by him, painted when he was about 18. You can see these paintings on our website. The copy in the Art Institute of Chicago shows only a mulatto maid. And for many decades, the version in the National Gallery of Ireland in Dublin also showed only the servant girl. But when the Dublin painting was cleaned in 1933, it revealed Jesus and the two men in the distant background of the upper left corner. Clearly, the Dublin version was the dinner at Emmaus. The main figure and the visual center point in both paintings is the kitchen maid in the foreground. Jesus and the men are relegated to a back room in the background. We see them only through a window-like opening. Velazquez pictures the maid as a mulatto, that is, the offspring of a Spanish Christian and an African Muslim. Barry Wynn has commented that the Hispanic antipathy of that day toward Moors considered them as lazy and subhuman. The subject of this painting, then, is a person marginalized at every level by her mixed race, religion, gender, class. The men speak of spiritual matters in the back room, She's hard at work in the kitchen. The, wo the woman is badly distracted. In her left hand, she holds a ceramic jug of wine. She's glancing over her right shoulder, listening carefully to the backroom conversation. She bends over to support herself. The stunned expression on her face indicates that her eavesdropping has confirmed her suspicion. She's in a state of shock at having recognized the man she's serving. Whereas the men had been blind to the identity of Jesus, even when he was with them for a seven-mile walk, the Moorish maid recognized the risen Christ while working in the mundane context of a kitchen. Denise Levertov's poem, The Servant Girl at Emmaus, a painting by Velazquez, reimagines this moment. We know from a note of hers that she had seen the painting in Ireland. It's what's called an exphrasis, that is, a literary description that reflects upon a visual work of art. Levertov's poem is a meditation on Velazquez's painting. Listen to her poem. She listens, listens, holding her breath. Surely that voice is his, the one who had looked at her once across the crowd as no one had ever looked, had seen her, had spoken as if to her. Surely those hands were his, 
taking the platter of bread from hers just now. Hands he had laid on the dying and made them well. Surely the face, the man they'd crucified for sedition and blasphemy, the man whose body disappeared from its tomb, the man it was rumored now some women had seen this morning alive. Those who had brought this stranger home to their table don't recognize yet with whom they sit, but she in the kitchen, absently touching the wine jug she's to take in, a young black servant intently listening, swings round and sees the light around him and is sure. Like the painting, Levertov's poem focuses not on Jesus or even his companions, but on the maid. She's having an interior conversation with herself. As she listens to the men in the back room, she realizes that she's encountered Jesus before. At first, it's his voice, then his gaze, his healing hands that now took the bread from her, and finally, his face. The repetition of the word surely three times indicates her shocking realization that this is Jesus, risen from the dead. Luke's story at Emmaus is a Eucharistic text. Luke 24.30 says that Jesus, quote, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. These words are identical to all three accounts of the Last Supper in the Synoptic Gospels. It was precisely when Jesus broke the bread that their eyes were open, a detail that Luke repeats a second time. He writes, Then the two told the other disciples what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by him when he broke the bread. Interestingly enough, as a historical footnote, there's a third painting by Velazquez called The Supper at Emmaus. It's now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, but it's very conventional. It depicts only Jesus, Cleopas, and his companion at the Eucharistic moment when they recognize the risen Lord in the breaking of the bread. I prefer the Dublin and Chicago versions and Levertov's poem about them. In them, the maid serves the bread. She doesn't take the bread. She's an observer and not a participant of the Eucharist, a mulatto outsider rather than a Spanish insider. But it was the men who didn't believe the resurrection report of the women and who were blind to the Christ who was right in front of them all day. Whereas in the imagination of Velazquez, it was a mulatto kitchen maid who testified first to the resurrected Lord. <clears throat> the story of the road to Emmaus. For books this week, I review a title by Martin Marty. The title of the book is called October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther and the Day that Changed the World. 
Brewster Paraclete Press, 2016. This little book is 114 pages long. This coming fall, on October 31st, 2017, the town of Wittenberg in Germany will host the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church and so kick-starting the Protestant Reformation. The town, which has a population of 50,000, is expecting 400,000 tourists. Martin Marty, born in 1928, an ordained Lutheran pastor, Fairfax Cone Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago, author of 60 books, and for the last 50 years, perhaps the premier scholar on American religion, is the perfect person to offer his own reflections on this anniversary of one of the most important pivot points in Western history. How was it, asked Martin Marty, that a young monk at a new university in an obscure little town lit the fuse and touched such a nerve as to convulse all of Europe and eventually the whole world. It's right there in thesis number one, says Marty. The first thesis reads, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended the entire life of believers to be repentance. In the Gospel of Mark, the first words spoken by Jesus call us to repentance. This was the focal point of all 95 theses, even an obsession with Luther, Luther, says Martin Marty, the biblical claim that one is made right with God, not through any human effort. The code word then and now was, was and is through good works, but instead entirely by divine grace through faith. Luther's idea touched the human heart at its deepest font. Our lifelong repentance, as Luther puts it in thesis number two, cannot be understood as sacramental penance. In other words, repentance best takes place in a church community, but it's ultimately a personal act rather than an ecclesiastical ritual. Repentance, an about-face or basic change of heart that leads to changed actions, is central to life rather than peripheral. It's essential rather than dispensable, obligatory, not optional. And contrary to modern misconceptions, when done well, repentance is entirely life-giving rather than death-dealing. Repentance is a movement toward health and wholeness rather than a descent into repression and self-recrimination. And as all good Lutherans know, repentance and justification by grace through faith lead to a life of joy and freedom. In his foreword to this little book, the Jesuit James Martin calls this a short book on a big topic written by an expert. What a joy to see Martin Marty writing on Martin Luther at the age of almost 90. 
And as usual for Martin Marty, this book is a combination of intellectual rigor and pastoral wisdom. Interested readers might also want to read his biography of the former, of the reformer. The title is very simple, Martin Luther, Penguin Press, 2004. But this week, Martin Marty, the title, October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther in the day that changed the world. And for poetry this week, we published a poem by Edwina Gately called To Say Yes. It's from Edwina Gately's book, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. We are called to say yes, that the kingdom might break through to renew and to transform our dark and groping world. We stutter and we stammer to the lone God who calls and pleads a new Jerusalem in the bloodied Sinai Straits. We are called to say yes, that honeysuckle may twine and twist its smelling leaves over the graves of nuclear arms. We are called to say yes, that children might play on the soil of Vietnam, where the tanks belched blood and death. We are called to say yes, that black may sing with white and pledge peace and healing for the hatred of the past. We are called to say yes so that nations might gather and dance one great movement for the joy of humankind. We are called to say yes so that rich and poor embrace and become equal in their poverty through the silent tears that fall. We are called to say yes that the whisper of our God might be heard through our sirens in the screams <clears throat> of our bombs. We are called to say yes to a God who still holds fast to the vision of the kingdom for a trembling world of pain. We are called to say yes to this God who reaches out and asks us to share his crazy dream of love. And a little bit out of order, but finally, our movie review for this week. It's an important movie. It's called I Am Not Your Negro, 2016. When James Baldwin died in 1987, he left behind an unfinished 33-page manuscript called Remember This House that he had discussed with his literary agent. The book project was to be Baldwin's deeply personal reflections on three of his friends who had been assassinated, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr., as a way to reflect on race relations in America. 
The film director, Raoul Peck, brings this manuscript to life by using only Baldwin's words, narrated either by Samuel L. Jackson or by Baldwin himself, all of which is accompanied with powerful archival images from the 1930s to the present. The movie makes extensive use of the portrayals of race in the history of cinema. After its release on February 3, 2017, the film earned remarkable and nearly universal critical praise. 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, for example, and 96% on Metacritic. The story of America is the story of the Negro, said Baldwin, and it's not a pretty story. A documentary film, I Am Not Your Negro. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, April 30th, 2017, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.